So this is uh, lesson 62. We're in chapter 21. And really, you know, this is uh, in Matthew's timeline of Yeshua's life. We're in the last week of his life. The fact is we're in days of his death. And just as Israel was to select a Passover lamb on the 10th of the Hebrew month of Nisan, the people lined the road into Jerusalem and hailed Yeshua as he came into town, thereby selecting Yeshua, calling him the son of David as he entered into Jerusalem on that very day, the 10th of Nisan. And then remember, they, Israel was to examine that Passover lamb for four days to make sure it was without blemish. And that's where we are. Yeshua is in the process of being examined by the Pharisees, the priests, the people during the last four days of his life. They're looking for some blemish in his life. And of course, they can't find any. And last week, we spoke about how he was in the temple healing the people. And we spoke of how that should have been the task of the shepherds of Israel. And this week we find him teaching in the temple. And again, this was the task of the shepherds of Israel, the teachers of the law. However, as Matthew has made clear, there were no shepherds in Israel. He calls the people sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. Telling us that the people were without direction. Zechariah told us that that's the way it would be. We saw it last week as we looked at the prophecies in Zechariah chapter 11. And it told us that it would be that way because the, true, the shepherds were corrupt. But now we have the true shepherd of Israel. The one that Zechariah spoke of in chapter 11 and again in chapter 13. He's in the temple. He's teaching. He's shepherding. And as we pick up in verse 23, he says this. And it says this. And Yeshua entered the temple courts. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? I want to set the stage a little bit for what's going on here today. You know, something that most people don't understand, really understand, is that in the first century there was no formal ordination process. There was no Hebrew university that you went to and completed a set, prescribed set of courses and after which you were called rabbi. The fact is that the term rabbi was a very new thing in the first century. If you look at the teachers of Israel prior to the first century, they're not called rabbi. There were, however, in the first century, schools of discipleship headed up by established teachers within the ranks of the Pharisees. And after a disciple completed his discipleship, there was a laying on of hands whereby the sage, but from the sage he received an authority to go out and teach and gather his own disciples. This realm of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law was closed society, very hard to infiltrate. The Sadducees, on the other hand, of course, they received their authority from the priesthood by virtue of being born into the priesthood. And then we also have the authority held by the Herodians, the civil authorities appointed by Herod and Rome. All of these positions of authority were really closed and hard, if not impossible, to enter. And so with that, we understand Yeshua here, he's not a priest, He's not a Pharisee. He's certainly not a Herodian. And yet he comes into the temple. 
He stops the selling of doves. He overthrows the tables of the money changers who are supposedly there to help the people exchange their Roman currency in order to pay the temple tax. But as we saw last week, both were gouging the people. And not just that, after he does that, he proceeds to teach the people, heal the people and teach the people. And so the authorities, the temple authorities, the members of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the Sadducees, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are the authorities, come to him as a united front because Yeshua is an affront to them. And they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And one of the things that makes this very interesting is that you have to realize there was no love lost between these groups. There was very little that they agreed upon. And yet they come here as a united front in their condemnation of what Yeshua is doing. Let's get a little more background. He is teaching and he's healing, which I'm sure they didn't like. But as teaching goes, you have to understand that it wasn't uncommon this time of year to have a lot of teachers in these temple courts teaching at the festivals, teaching in the outer courts. So the real problem they have with Yeshua isn't so much his teaching, but it's his coming in as Zechariah said he would come, lowly, riding on a donkey. And then his coming in and overturning the tables of the money changers, rebuking the authorities operating those tables. They see this as a subversive act. And so they ask him a question that's most certainly a trap. You see, here's the problem with their question. Yeshua has no authority from them or from Herod. And if Yeshua does not say that his authority is divine, then he's saying he's not the Messiah. And all that pomp on the road coming into town was not a fulfillment of Zechariah and Daniel, but orchestrated by him alone. He had no authority to do what he did when he entered the temple. Then if he says his authority is divine... He's claiming that he is the Messiah, the son of David, the rightful king of Israel, by which they can call him a blasphemer. The priests can call him a blasphemer. And those of Herod's bunch can call him a subversive. So here's what we have. We have a suspected subversive come into the temple and the chief priests and the Pharisees of the Sanhedrin are high alert at this time of year. It's Passover. They're watching for this very thing. The temple... And Jerusalem are filled with pilgrims from all over the land of Israel. This made it a perfect time for false messiahs and other subversives to come in and gather followers. And so the Sanhedrin is on high alert and enter Yeshua here on the 10th of Nisan to the cheers of the people, calling him the son of David. And Yeshua does nothing to stop them. Does nothing to stop the people. And then he enters the temple courts, he confronts the temple priests and others who are under the direction of the Sanhedrin exchanging Roman coins for shekels so they can pay their temple tax. He overturns their table, drives out those selling doves. And so what we have here is a potential subversive, someone that's going to cause trouble in their eyes. Not only that, after that episode, he enters and and what does he do? In verse 14 it says, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So not only that, after he does those things, he comes into the temple 
And he starts to heal the blind and the lame that are coming to him. And while it's not stated, I'm sure there were many other people with sicknesses, other sicknesses coming to him as well. Well, let me tell you, the quickest way to draw a crowd is have a healing meeting. Even today, you want to attract a lot of people, have a healing meeting. And the one I'm talking about is where the people are actually being healed. And people are going out from there telling everybody what happened. And that's what's going on here. The word will get out and you'll have huge meetings after that. And it's no different in Yeshua's day. Just think of the news of the blind receiving sight and the lame picking up their mats and walking. It's going to spread through the temple and Jerusalem like a wildfire. And it's going to attract a huge gathering in the temple. Couple that with the fact that Yeshua has been doing this all over the land of Israel for three years and you can imagine the size of the crowds that he's attracting. He has a large crowds gathered around him and now we read that he begins to teach. Now as I said, there's a lot of rabbis in the temple teaching at this time of the year. We have teachers of the law who are from the various schools in Israel, Shammai, Hillel, Gamaliel, all teaching in the temple. We could even make a case for Shaul being there, one of the students of Gamliel. But with the miracles Yeshua is performing, the crowds are gathering around this one teacher. Not only that, then if we look at some of the things that he would be teaching, let's look at some of the things he'd be teaching. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 7. When Yeshua finished these things saying, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one having authority, not as the teachers of the law. I want you to see the effect that his teaching had on people. His teachings amazed those who listened. Listen to what Matthew chapter 13 and verse 53 says. Yeshua finished these parables. He moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. They were amazed. Where did this man get such wisdom and these miraculous powers. Now the reason I read these, these are, happened earlier in his ministry, but they, they, we know that what he's doing in the temple is having the same effect. His teaching and his healings are amazing people. This is the kind of thing that's going on as he teaches in the temple. Yeshua healing and teaching some amazing things. Imagine the crowd that's gathered around him. Imagine the crowd gathered around Gamliel listening to his teaching and then all of a sudden they hear Yeshua's performing some miracles over here people are people are getting their sight back people are are getting up and picking up their mats and walking cripples and so the crowd gathered around Gamliel slowly dissipates and moves on over toward where the spirit of God is working not only that but let's look at what he was teaching Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. Then Yeshua said to the crowds and to the disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the places of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have men call them rabbi. This is the kind of thing he's teaching and he's also teaching this. Let's uh, look at Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. Come to me, 
all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And so he's looking like a real problem to the leaders of the people, and the temple overseers. He's attracted a huge following. This guy's a troublemaker. And so they come to Yeshua, and notice above that he says, that it says, while he was teaching. Yeshua has this enormous adoring crowd gathered around him. And they come to him while he's teaching. And the crowd is gathered. And they ask him a question that's designed to give them a cause to put a stop to what he's doing. It's a loaded question designed to give them cause to discredit, dismiss, or even arrest Yeshua. Well, it's a huge mistake because Luke tells us something about Yeshua in chapter 9 and verse 46. He says, An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Yeshua, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand by them and said to them, Whoever comes to me like this little child in my name, welcomes me and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me for he who is least among you all is the greatest and the thing i wanted you to see is the thing i made emphasis was yeshua has this amazing ability to see right through you like the woman the the like the 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 woman who came to him at the well and he read her life story to her he has this amazing ability to see through you he knows the thoughts and he knows the heart the thoughts of the hearts of men are evil and nothing more and not only that, he sees what they really want. And it has nothing to do with what they're asking. You see, Yeshua sees the treachery, their treachery, and so he answers this way. He says, Yeshua replied, I will also ask you one question. And if you answer me, then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? From heaven or from men? Uh, Yeshua's answer is amazing. You know, arguing with Yeshua is a lesson in futility. And we should remember that for our personal lives. When he asks us to do something or stop doing something, don't argue because it's, it's futile. Because he's the one who sees right through you. But it is... If this is the purpose for their question, if it was to discredit Yeshua in front of the crowd because they know he has no authority within their ranks, he is about to send them away belittled and leave the crowd further amazed. If they've come to arrest him for treason or blasphemy, it's not going to happen because he sees what they're about and instead of answering their question directly, which would put the focus on him, he turns the focus back on them. And who does he use? Yochanan. He uses Yochanan. Why does he use Yochanan? Because everyone loved Yochanan. They loved him. They knew he was a righteous man. Even the historian Josephus says this about Yochanan. Now when... Many others came in crowds about him for they were greatly moved or pleased by hearing his words. Herod who feared lest the great influence John had over the people might be put into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion thought it best by putting him to death 
thereby prevent any mischief that he might cause, not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent when it should be too late. So he asks him a question about Yochanan's authority. He turns the tables right on him and he asks him a question about Yochanan's authority. He asks, was Yochanan's immersion from heaven, or we could say from God, because remember Yeshua uses a circumlocution for God's name. He often uses the term heaven. So he says, is it from God or from men? Well, think about Yochanan's immersion. It was that of repentance. He came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, return to God for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Did these men believe him? Did the people believe him? Well, the common people did. The sinners did. How about the priests and the Pharisees? Did they believe him? Not so much. Remember, he calls them a brood of vipers when they come to question his authority. Remember that. Not only that, Yochanan also declared to this representatives of this very Sanhedrin who came to question him, he, he says this in John chapter 1, verse 19. He says, now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I'm not the Messiah. They asked him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah, I am the prof prophet, Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, Elijah, or the prophet? I baptize with water. John said, but among you stands one who you do not know. He's the one who comes after me, whose throngs and sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And not only that, he also says this, the next day, John saw Yeshua coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so their question, though it's really not a question at all, because it leaves Yeshua with only one answer, he would have to say his authority was from God, because his authority, like Yochanan's authority, was from God. So instead of answering, which is exactly what they would like him to do so they can accuse him, he turns the table in such a way that they have no answer, thereby leaving him not having to answer. Listen to what it, they say. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why then did you not believe him? If we say from men, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Yeshua, we do not know. And then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't answer their question. He doesn't leave it at that either, though, because he is going to rebuke them in a series of parables, which we're going to look at next. And it will truly settle the matter, expose their treachery, and really, in the end, it will answer their question. The parable. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. And the first, he went to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his mind and he went. The father then went to the other son and said the same thing. He said, I will, sir. 
but he didn't go. Now, the fact that the parable is about them is not going to be lost on these men, as we're going to see, but I want to just expand on this parable a bit so we just get a real feel for it. Yeshua uses an example of a landowner who has two sons. And while it's not saying, let's imagine, he wants them to go work in the vineyard, so let's imagine that the grapes are ripe, they need it to be picked, and if not, they're going to spoil on the vine or they're going to end up raisins, no good for wine or whatever. And so he says to the first son, he says, go work in the vineyard, and the son says, no, I won't. The landowner, knowing the grapes have to be picked, goes to the other son and says the same thing, and he says, I will go. So now, for the landowner, the harvest is not something that he even has to worry about anymore because his son told him he'll go take care of it. However, the son who promised to go does not. Well, if nothing else happens, what do you think the fa- who do you think the father is going to be angry with in a few days when he goes out and he sees the grapes rotting on the vine? He's not going to be very happy with that boy, right? However, the crop was not lost because the first son goes out and if nothing else happens, you can, you can imagine what would happen to the crop. If the crop, however, was not lost because the other son repented, he saw the crop wasn't being picked, he saw the father was in a bind, and he went out to work in the field and he saved the crop. When the landowner found out, what do you, how do you suppose he'd feel about that son? Right? So who's the hero in the story? The son who did not promise but said no, or the son that promised he would and did not go. Who is it? Well, it, really, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? It's a no-brainer, and they get it as well, as we're going to read. Which of the two did, his father, did what his father wanted? The first they answered, and Yeshua said to them. We'll get to what he said in a minute. But here's the point. These men had rejected Yochanan and his words of repentance. So they are the second son, right? They were not doing the will of God. Now listen to what he says. I tell you the truth, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. Even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. And so now Yeshua explains the meaning of the parable. The Pharisees are the sons who said yes to God. They were the shepherds of Israel. They said yes to God. They were the sons who said yes and were to be caring for the flock. Said yes to God for teaching the flock, but they've ignored the harvest. John's message of repentance, instead of listening to John's message of repentance, and instead of shepherding the people, they were taking advantage of the people. So they're the second son who said yes but didn't go do the work of the harvest. But those who had originally said no to God, those who had originally taken advantage of the people by saying no to God, they were the tax collectors who collected extra for themselves, the prostitutes. They were repenting and in the end said yes to Yochanan's message and now they're entering the kingdom of heaven that Yochanan spoke of. Not only that, he adds... Even after you saw this amazing thing that John was doing, leading people to repent, you did not turn back. So now, so their own answer really exposes them. Now Yeshua's next parable is going to expose their treachery for not only 
Did they not accept John's testimony and repent as tax collectors and prostitutes did, but their rejection and treachery is going to lead to his death as well. Listen to what he says next. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. And when the harvest time came, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenant seized the servants, beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Then they sent the other servants, then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. So in this parable, Yeshua is going to get real personal now. He speaks of the landowner who built the vineyard and rented it, and when his servants came for his portion of the harvest, they killed them. The landowner in the parable is God. The renters in the parable are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the servants, and the, uh, uh, and the servants of, of, of the landowner are the prophets. And so the reference is obvious. He's speaking to the death of the prophet, prophets of which the Lord had sent to Israel. Later, Yeshua will say to his crowds, to the crowds that are gathered there and to the Pharisees, he says this, you snakes, and notice he uses the same words as Yochanan used. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from your town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. The blood of the righteous from Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berkiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth. All this will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. Yeshua's example, Yochanan was certainly one of those. But listen to what, how angry God was with all of this. We find it in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 15. Then the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. Now, you know, the Pharisees are going to say, well, that was our forefathers, that's not us. But Yeshua straightens that out in Matthew chapter 23. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build up tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers... We would not have taken part with them in shedding blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of sin of your forefathers. So Yeshua finally, finally Yeshua in a parable prophesies his death and I want to read that. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, there's the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes. What will he do with those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. So Yeshua, in a parable, not only alludes to the destruction that's about to come, but I want you to know it's reminiscent of the Targum on Isaiah. 
Isaiah chapter five, I wanna read it for you, verse two. This is God talking about Israel. He says, I sanctified them. I made them glorious. I propped them up as precious vine, as a precious vine. I built my sanctuary in the midst of them. I gave also my altar to make atonement for their sins. And I thought they should go and do good works for me, but they did evil works. Now I tell you what I will do to my people. I will cause my Shekinah to be removed from them and they will be for a spoil. I will break down the house of their sanctuary and they shall be for treading down. And so Yeshua is telling them the same thing that Isaiah told their forefathers. I can't help but imagine that this translation of the Targum was in his mind as he spoke these words. And I know that these Pharisees had heard this translation many times in the synagogues. Yeshua, in case you haven't noticed, just answered their question. On what authority? In a way that couldn't bring accusation upon him. He's the son in the parable. He has authority, but they will put him to death. Then he brings a final condemnation. And the final condemnation of these men comes through a psalm. And I want you to think about this psalm because it's going to be one that they're going to hear on the day of Yeshua's death as they slaughter their lamb. And it should give them something to think about as they slaughter their lambs. And the lamb of God, is being, life is being taken from them. He says to them, Yeshua said to them, have you never read in scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will, not, who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Yeshua's parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people thought he was a prophet. That, you know, that really needs a little commentary. But the thing I want you to see is that the church has used this through the centuries to say we've replaced the Jewish people in the economy of God. That God is through with the Jewish people, but that's not what Yeshua is saying at all. He alludes to the giving of the kingdom not to a race, not to Gentiles, not to Jewish people. Who gets the kingdom? Those who go and work in the vineyard. The kingdom is given and belongs to those who in the end go and work in the vineyard who will do the work of the rebuilding of the kingdom. And it makes no difference whether you're Jew or non-Jew. It's the one who does the will of the Father that the kingdom is given to. You see how futile it is to argue with Yeshua? They come to trap him with a question that really only leaves him one answer that will give them a cause to arrest him and belittle him. And so instead, he turns the question around and exposes their treachery, their shortcomings. He humiliates them in front of this huge crowd that's gathered around him and answers their question in a way that brings judgment upon them and not him. And the point I want to make, I think there's a lesson for us all to learn here in this rebuke of the Pharisees that he's done. And it's the point I want to make. And it's one I alerted, alluded to earlier in the message. And that's the futility of arguing with Yeshua. And I, yet I fear 
that we all do this at times in our lives. Our lives should be consumed with the work of the vineyard. Our lives should be consumed with the gathering in of the harvest before the end comes and the harvest is ruined. That is what he's asked us to do. It's what he asked these men who confronted him to do. The question for us today is, are we going to argue with that? Are we going to say, Hineni, here am I? Or do we argue and say, well, I've got to do this, or I've got to do that. Let me say that choosing Yeshua in the will of the Father is not a one-time event, and then your life is covered by God. It's an everyday, daily event that keeps you under the covering of God. Amen?